and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquat-Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, James Morgan, Marvin L. Golderberg Professor of Environmental Engineering Science at Caltech, talks about his life and career with Diane Newman, professor in the Division of Geological and Planetary Sciences and the Division of Biology, also at Caltech. He describes his beginnings in Ireland and New York City, how he was introduced to science at a Bronx high school, his engineering studies, and how he became interested in the environment and aquatic chemistry. This is May 12th. 2014, and this is Diane Newman with Professor Jim Morgan at Caltech. And we're going to start this interview by learning about Jim's background, and take it away, Jim. My father first came to the United States from Ireland in 1920. He stayed in the States for about six years, returned to Ireland in 19, in 1926, my mother and father were married the following year, and the day after they were married, they embarked for New York. Uh, they lived in New York for the next seven years, and in 1932, I was born. They're from Irish farming families. And so what brought them to the States? Well, my father first came to the States, I think, to look for economic opportunity. And during his time in the States, he became a conductor on the New York State trolley system. Uh, I think the second time he came after my mother and father were married, uh, it was simply to find a, a better life than they could live on the farm in Ireland. He owned the farm in Ireland, but he wasn't too keen on farming. So I think that throughout the, uh, the five times that my father crossed the ocean in steamship, the idea was always to find a better living than could be accomplished on either side of the Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> so I went back to Ireland with my mother and father after I was two years after I was born. And I stayed in Ireland until, the family stayed in Ireland until 1937, when they returned to the States for good. And, and, so, and where in Ireland did you live then? Knock Ballaroni, which is a, a townland of a population of probably about more, no more than 50 or 60 people, a collection of farms in the county of Monaghan and in what was then simply uh, Ireland under the government of England, Great Britain. I see. So where did you grow up in New York City? When we first came back, the family first came back in 1937, we settled in the Bronx, New York. I went to parochial school there for probably for four years, and uh, then the family moved to Manhattan on the other side of the Harlem River. I tend to situate my time in New York by rivers. I was born at Columbia Presbyterian, about a mile from the Hudson River. And uh, when we moved across the Harlem River, we were once again close to the Hudson River. When, I moved, when the family moved to the west side, 
Uh, my mother tried to enroll me in a parochial school, but they said I would have to be left back a year because of the calendar and the way different public schools worked and Catholic schools worked. So she enrolled me in the public school, PS 189, and uh, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I suddenly had a wider view of the world than I think I would have had in four more years of parochial school. And did you have brothers and sisters? I have have and still have one, <coughs> excuse me, younger sister who was born in Ireland in 1936, and uh, she came back with the family in 37. She lives uh, in the New York area, out on Long Island, and uh, we've been very close most of our lives, except for the rivalries that start when you're young. <laughs> and so I, I noticed that you moved back to New York right before World War II started. What was it like in those years being in New York as a schoolboy? Well, in 1938, which is when I started parochial school, I had no sense of the larger world around me. To me, the world was about a two-square-block area in the Bronx, and I had, I had no awareness of uh, the world outside. I was, I was aware that when the world when World War II started, December seventh, nineteen forty one, because it was on the headlines of papers as I walked by newsstands on my way to school, and that was my first awareness. Mm-hmm. So, you were very young then, and, and so you went through your education in New York City. And at what point did you? get interested in engineering or in science. How did you decide to go to college, and what made you interested in studying civil engineering when you went to college? When I was in high school, which was Cardinal Hayes High School, a New York diocesan citywide high school for, I think of it as the working class and the middle class for upward mobility, I followed a, a sort of personal curriculum. Don't know where I got the ideas from, probably here and there. I remember studying business arithmetic as a freshman in high school, and I studied mechanical drawing as a sophomore in high school. And then I followed a, a menu of science courses, more by impulse than anything else. There was no one in the family that had a scientific background. The strongest line of strongest thread of professional background that I recall when Young was teaching. My mother late in life said that when I was five years old, which would be just about the time we left Ireland, I told my mother that I wanted to be a teacher. When you were five? Yeah. She said she had no idea where that came from because I'd never been to school in Ireland. I, I think it was probably because I stood out in front of the farmhouse in the morning and watched the children from other farms going to school. And I thought, that must be a very interesting thing to do. I'm, I'm, this is all, of course, imagined, imagined because you don't have very clear memories of, of your overall life. But, so I followed a curriculum in high school, which was uh, science, mathematics, and the science was biology, chemistry, physics. The mathematics was through uh, 
solid geometry, which was as far as you could go in, uh, in high school in those days. Uh, my favorite subject was actually history, uh, partly because I admired, among others, the history teacher. I also admired the physics teacher, uh, who, by the way, was a Kentucky basketball fan, which I found very difficult to understand. He was a brother, a Christian, uh, a LaSalle brother, and uh, he came, must have come from Kentucky, as far as I can tell. Anyway, when I was about to graduate from high school, my ambition was, by that time I'd learned about college. Entering high school, I had no idea of college. My ambition halfway through high school was possibly to be a clerk in an insurance company, because that's what I knew kids in the neighborhood did, among other things. When I went into my counseling interview at the start of my senior year, the counselor said, there's been some terrible mistake here. You've never had a foreign language. And being quick on the draw, I said, I didn't know that. Was I supposed to have a foreign language? And he said, oh, well, it's too late now. <laughs> now, that's important because I was hoping to go to Fordham University to study history particularly American history. But my aptitude tests of the sort that everybody was taking in high school indicated that I had a very strong potential for science and engineering. So I applied to several engineering schools, uh, Columbia, uh, City College of New York, Manhattan College, and as things worked out, I got the best financial aid to go to Manhattan College. Uh, I had City College was, of course, a free university. I could have gone there. My mother and father had a slight preference for a Catholic college. Manhattan College was and still is a Catholic college. So that's how I came to be studying engineering at a small Catholic college in New York, Looking back, it seems that chances here and there give you different possibilities, and you have to make selections. So I went to Manhattan College not having a clue in the world about what engineers did. There I was. And I thought, I've heard that electrical engineers make a lot of money. <laughs> so when I went there... I was thinking I'd study electrical engineering. Now, Manhattan College, being a small college, had only two flavors of engineering. One was electrical and the other was civil. Uh, at the end of my freshman year, I, I worked for Consolidated Edison, the power generator for New York, and I spent a lot of time at power plants. And for some semi-rational reason, I developed a distaste for electrical engineering. But I think the real reason was that I had come to understand that of the two subjects, electrical engineering and civil engineering, electrical engineering was much more demanding of mathematical skills. And while my mathematical skills were certainly adequate, I didn't have a big appetite for them. And at that time, it occurred to me to look more into civil engineering. And I came away talking to people that it was more of a public profession than, uh, I'll say, a private in, uh, industrial profession. <clears throat> so I chose at the end of my freshman year to follow what was called the civil engineering program. 
And that's when I first began to learn about water. So, so was there a professor in uh, Manhattan College that made you particularly interested in water? How did you hone in on that as your area? Well, in the sophomore year, I started not to take courses from the man who eventually was my role model, because that had to wait until the junior year. But I met him in the sophomore year, Professor Donald J. O'Connor, who was, uh, I would say, charismatic, very, 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 very intelligent, and very, very good teacher. So I started to know him, and then I signed up for a progression of courses in the junior year that were uh, oriented toward water. That included sort of the big engineering things, like how to convey water, and uh, how to treat water, how to treat wastewater. And so gradually, uh, I started to get a picture of what, what, not research, because I didn't know about research very much then. I knew, I was thinking, this is a very interesting way, this would be a very interesting way to make a living judging by what Donald O'Connor does. At the time, I didn't know it, but he was still working on his Ph.D., uh, and working in a New York City consulting firm and teaching at Manhattan College. Uh, He was working on his Ph.D. at New York University, uh, and he finished his Ph.D. two years after I graduated from Manhattan, and his work was classic. It was a brilliant piece of work about how to predict the ability of rivers to replenish the oxygen supply from the atmosphere after it had been depleted through oxidation-reduction reactions. So he was my major influence at Manhattan College. Not the only one, to be sure, but the major one. Uh, when I look back, I think of him as the first of him as the first great influence on what my future was to be. All right. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about the non-academic side of life in New York and, and your interest in the Marx Brothers and other things. Well. I have to be truthful to you and tell you that I never heard of the Marx Brothers when I was in Manhattan College. Uh, my favorite humorists uh, were uh, a radio team called Bob and Ray, who were the first comedians that I was aware of who made humor out of everyday life experiences and giving it a certain spin and a certain twist. And I had a very good friend, he's still my good friend, who started with me at Manhattan College as freshman. Uh, He and I had great fun doing takeoffs on Bob and Ray, who were doing takeoffs on life (laughs) in the big city and Boston, New York, and so forth. So that was a major major influence. I probably didn't learn more about uh, comedy. Uh, You allude to the Marx Brothers. I'll fast forward to that later. But uh, W.C. Fields was a kind of, uh, I knew a little bit from the movies, that he was a kind of, uh, not role model, but a sort of anti-role model. He uh, 
he disdained uh, ordinary human friendship, I think. The major influence on my personal life in and around New York City was actually social action. Uh, I became uh, aware of a group of students at City College where my friend Moran, Jim Moran, had transferred to. And through them I met students who were very interested in uh, social action within their university, and that was City College in this case. So I became interested in student government. Uh, at, the, at the end of my junior year, I ran for president of the uh, student council and won in a landslide, and I have no idea why. I think it must have been that my opponent was less attractive than I was. He was from the business school. I was from the engineering school. So how did I spend my time? I spent my time trying to be the, a very good student, but never trying to be the best student, always balancing my trying to be a good student, not the best student, trying to balance my time between uh, extracurricular activity and sports. What kind of sports did you Basketball, the city game. Uh -huh. I started playing basketball in the schoolyard when I was 13 years old, and uh, I stopped playing basketball at the age of 68. Wow. What was, what was your favorite position? Shooting guard. <laughs> Outside shot, because I knew that if I got too close to the basket, I could get killed. I was only about five foot ten, and, and at that time weighed 150 pounds, soaking wet. Oh, so, wow. So uh, basketball pragmatic. was great. Basketball was great fun. I also loved touch football, because I, at those days, and at that weight, I was very speedy. So I remember one of my fondest memories is as a senior, the civil engineers winning the uh, touch football championship yeah. in the rain in December, defeating a team from physical education. <laughs> that sort of had a special <laughs> feeling for it. So I think that uh, my, my acquaintance with humor was uh, a melding of two. One was the New York making fun of life in the city and if I'd known about the Marx Brothers now, I would have, I would have embraced Groucho fully. Uh, but I didn't. And I was more aware of... Uh, I was more aware of movies as vehicles for serious life. I remember uh, seeing Julius Caesar when I was, I think, maybe a junior, and uh, seeing Hamlet. Julius Caesar was famous at the time, or no, notable at the time, because Marlon Brando was in Julius Caesar. And Hamlet with Laurence Olivier. A sidetrack side to these remarks is that among my closest friends at Manhattan College during my junior and senior year were people from the School of Arts and Sciences, especially from liberal arts. I really enjoyed sharing cultural events with them, going to the movies, going to a play, and so forth. And uh, so humor was, humor was what we did, but humor wasn't something we admired 
very greatly in people that I would come to admire later, and I'll tell you later about why I admire. Mainstream of my humor was New York and Irish humor. Mm -hmm. I grew up in an Irish family in New York, which never seemed to have left Ireland. That is, my mother and father spoke with a very strong Irish accent. Indeed, I had an Irish accent until I was eight years old and went to parochial school, and my mother told me later, the nuns were so disappointed when I lost my Irish brogue because it was a little touch of Ireland for them, don't you know? <laughs> yeah, so life in New York kept me very busy. I also worked in the summers, as everybody had to, to mm -hmm. save money to go back to school in the fall. At what point did you meet your wife? Was this later, when you Much went later. to college? Okay. Much later. Uh -huh. uh, my social life in... Uh, in New York was centered on being invited to dances at a Catholic women's college and inviting the same young lady from that Catholic women's college to dances at Manhattan College, which meant that I saw her about three times every year. <laughs> <laughs> and apart from that, I had, I had no... Uh, I, was, uh, I was a bit of a workaholic, but not only about engineering, as I told you. I was interested in social action. I was interested in student government. I was interested in things like that. And, of course, sports. Mm -hmm. I would never have gotten through most of my life without sports because it was a great, a great re relief from uh, the intense work of being a student. I guess most people know that. Park and play pickup basketball. That's how I met some of my future friends. Yeah. And stayed. I'll, I'll talk later about that, but when I went to University of Michigan, as I eventually did, uh -huh. uh, some, some friendships from Manhattan College were renewed there. I see. And those were friendships you made via sports? Uh, initially initial. via sports, that's Very right. Very nice. So then how did you... Okay, so maybe we should turn our attention to leaving New York now and, and moving into yes, college? Yes, a little story okay. about that. Uh, I admired Donald J. O'Connor very much. And his specialty, as I said, was the oxygen balance in rivers and later in his life in estuaries where the rivers meet the ocean. Uh, but he did not encourage me to apply to Harvard, because I was aware that Harvard was a very important place to be in environmental engineering in those days, because they were at the cutting edge of the same work that O'Connor was doing. But I never, I never thought to ask him at the time to recommend me to Harvard. And later, 20 years later, I did ask him, and he made a very a very uh, insightful remark, which has stayed with me much of my life. He said, I didn't think you were fully serious about engineering because of my student government activities. And he said, when I was at Manhattan College 10 years before, this is what he told me in the future, I was doing the same thing you were doing. I was spreading myself, especially into art. He's a very good painter. And he said, and it held me back quite for some time by not being focused, and I didn't think you were focused. 
So the reason I went to Michigan is that an interviewer came to the campus to recruit prospects for the master's program at the University of Michigan. I was very impressed by him. Very, very courtly and uh, elegant man, Clarence Vells. And he uh, offered me a fellowship to go to the University of Michigan. This was in about March or April. And uh, when I had a letter from him, I accepted it. And I never, I never looked at any other universities. And this was 1954? 1954. As it turned out later, uh, I was later offered fellowships to MIT, uh, University of Connecticut, and so forth. But I'd already committed myself to Michigan, and I am glad I did. And this was for a master's, master's degree? Master's degree. And then did you later get a Ph.D.? Oh, much later. Okay, so... That's... Uh, there's a... There's an idea in the Catholic Church of uh, people who study for the priest, priesthood and have something called a late vocation. Uh-huh. That is, they discover later in their life, not when they're 14 or 15 or 16, that they want to be priests. Well, I discovered later in my life that I wanted to get an advanced education beyond the master's degree. And, and that's a very important story to, to elaborate on at a, at a later point. Okay. Well, I went to Michigan. Two weeks at Michigan. Uh, during the first two weeks in Michigan, I met Gene McIntosh uh, uh, at a party. And the next month, she left to teach. Left next month to teach elementary school in Long Beach, California. So I didn't see her for a full year. <laughs> and uh, then she then she returned the following year to pursue a master's degree at Michigan and I was still working on my master's degree because I was a research assistant as I found out not a fellowship even though I had a fellowship offer. I see. And that meant half time work as a, as a graduate assistant and half time going to classes mm-hmm. at Michigan. Mm-hmm. Anyway I met Jean and, uh, in 1955 fall and during that year we came to know one another much better and at the end of 1956 I proposed nuptialization, and she accepted, and we were married a year later. Was she from Michigan? Yes. She was from uh, the Detroit area, a city called a city within a city called Highland Park at the time. Yes. So that's that was the great glad looking back why I'm glad I went to Michigan. <laughs> the other reason I went, I'm glad I went to Michigan. It was so different from New York City, where I was always surrounded by, except for my time at Manhattan College during the day, surrounded by asphalt and apartment house buildings and walk-ups and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that, I got to Michigan, and I discovered that I was a pretty good student. But once again, I followed the pattern I had at, uh, not, a, not a very pronounced pattern, but I followed a pattern that I learned at Manhattan College, which is pick and choose this, the courses that depended required the greatest in- commitment from me. And uh, those turned out to be uh, biology, a biology course, which I took in the medical school, uh, advanced mathematics, because I needed more advanced mathematics. I had a feeling, so I took differential equations at the University of Michigan. And I took a statistics course. And, of course, I took all the courses that you had to take to get a master's degree in 
civil engineering and environmental engineering at the University of Michigan, many of which were repeats but at a much higher level than I'd been exposed to at Manhattan College. So when I left the University of Michigan with a master's degree, mm-hmm. I thought, I know pretty much there is everything there is to know about what was then becoming known as uh, environmental engineering. Not quite yet, but it was it was in transition from civil to sanitary engineering to environmental health engineering. And that transition was completed at the time I arrived at Caltech many years ago. I see. That's interesting. So you went for a two-year program, and then at this point you were newly married. Yes. And you decided... No, I, I wasn't married in 1956. We were married a year after I left Michigan, and that's when I went to the University of Illinois. Okay. I was reading a magazine called the Journal of Engineering Education uh, in the library. And, mm-hmm. I, and I said, ah, this, this, this magazine comes from the University of Illinois. So on an impulse, I wrote to the editor of the magazine and said, if you happen to know of any jobs teaching civil engineering, uh, please let me know. By return mail, I got an offer of a faculty position. <laughs> Wow. At the University of Illinois, <laughs> because he literally walked down the hall, handed my letter to the chairman of civil engineering. That's pretty. Who probably good. thought, hmm, "We got a live one here." <laughs> anyway, I was offered the job, and I took it sight unseen. And I joke with my students, and I, I said, I, I said, whenever I'm offered a job, my impulse is to take it, <laughs> because I never know if I'll get another offer. I wasn't that so self-confident that I thought there'll be lots of offers for a guy with a master's degree uh, from uh, a Midwestern university. So I, I had proposed to Jean. I got on the train and went to Champaign-Urbana uh, and took that job as an instructor in civil and sanitary engineering in the summer of 1956. And we were engaged for the rest of that year and married the following June, 1957. So we were engaged by train. I would take the train from Mm Champaign-Urbana to Ann Arbor, Mm -hmm. and then a couple of months later she would take the train from Ann Arbor to Champaign-Urbana. Got it. And then when did she move to be with you in Illinois? Well, we were married in yes. 19, June 1957. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sounds good. And so what were you teaching? At the University of Illinois, uh, I was thrown into the fire, as they say, because I learned that I was an instructor among many first-time instructors. Uh-huh. So I would teach courses like the, the design and mixing of plain concrete for that is without reinforcing bars. And I, so I taught that, and a laboratory course in that. I taught a course in surveying. Uh, I taught a course in water distribution systems. Wow. It's just whatever whatever needed to be taught, the instructors with the rank of instructor uh-huh. just said, okay, you're teaching that next year. But that's hardcore civil engineering. That was hardcore this. civil engineering at the start. Uh-huh. And in my second year, I was given the opportunity to teach a, a course in water supply. Uh, which was getting closer to my my professed interest at the time, and so over the over the couple of first couple of years, I started to mer- edge into teaching courses that were more about water and water treatment. And what drew your interest into that area? 
well, first of all, when I went to the University of Illinois, I had a shock. I discovered that in the year before I arrived, three people had retired and one person had resigned. It was, to say the, to say the least, it was a skeleton faculty. And the man who was given the responsibility was an assistant professor who had just arrived in 1955 and I'd arrived in 1956, Richard Engelbrecht, a very, very enthusiastic, biologically inclined young professor. So I was recruited, in addition to recruited teaching, I was recruited to join research projects that were underway. And he was, by default, he was in charge of them because everybody else had retired or resigned. I think it was just an accident of time. Illinois had one of the great reputation schools in in sanitary engineering throughout most of the 40s and 50s. And Harold Babbitt resigned the year before I got there. And uh, that was just chance. But through Richard Engelbrecht, I got signed on to research projects that had to do with, I'll call it chemistry in the large. That is, sampling rivers, uh, analyzing the waters brought back from the rivers. And the things we were sampling and analyzing were synthetic detergents, which were one of the new newly recognized chemical pollutants. In fact, chemical pollution had not really been in the forefront of the of sanitary and civil engineering prior to that. There was some interest in phenols in the 50s because they came from places like steel mills and so forth for reasons I've, reasons I, I've forgotten. So I started studying phosphorus study. I would bring the samples back to the lab and I would analyze them. Uh, I would bring, I'd, I'd analyze them for two things. Long chain phosphates, not simple phosphate, the one that we know as essential nutrient in all, all living things. But these were industrial compounds that were chains of, of, called polyphosphates. And they were used in detergents in order to make the detergents better detergents. And the other component of the detergents was alkyl benzene sulfonate, short ABS. And it was the thing that caused rivers to foam up to heights of 10, 20 feet in different parts of the Midwest because they were going into the sewers, into the rivers. So that, when I started sampling rivers in the fall of uh, summer and fall of 1956, I could not drive a car. I grew up in New York. I never learned to drive a car. Oh, wow. So they hired an undergraduate student to drive me to every river. I sampled with him. I remember it was a very, very bright and enthusiastic young man. He was, I think, a senior maybe in engineering. I sampled with him eight different rivers in the state of Illinois, including the Mississippi. We would pull up to the bridge, lower the bucket down, bring the water up, put it into bottles and so forth, take it back to the lab. That's how I started to realize that maybe my future could be in chemistry, not in the hardcore civil engineering that I was still teaching at that time, but beginning to get phased out of 
teaching order quality. And that was very important to me because it, it deter I was determined at that point in my first year at Illinois to learn chemistry that I had never learned before. Did it motivate you to learn how to drive a car as well? Took a, it took a full year before... I, pa I failed the driving test <laughs> twice. Uh, and then, uh, and by that time, Gene, uh, I failed that before we were married. And after we were married, Gene said, you really ought to take a course. So I took a course from a driving school and passed the exam. <laughs> and we had already bought a car, a 1953 Chevy. This was 1957. And it sat there because neither one of us wanted to drive it. Jean knew how to drive, but she didn't want to drive the thing. I didn't know how to drive. So anyway, that made us more mobile and, and so forth. Uh, I, I, I laid out a program for myself with the advice of Richard Engelbrecht, who was a, a biologist biologist. And I decided I was going to have a minor in chemistry uh, and a second minor in fluid mechanics because I still had this awareness that how things move from place to place is a very important aspect of water quality, indeed air quality, and all environmental phenomena, transport. So those were the courses that I could take one course free of charge for every semester I was employed at the University of Illinois. And so over the next four years before I made a move, I was getting a strong foundation. First of all, I had to study organic chemistry mm -hmm. because I wanted to study biochemistry, so I had organic chemistry. Uh, interesting enough, from a young assistant professor who had received his Ph.D. the year before at Caltech from Jack Roberts. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, double, uh, Douglas Applequist. He uh -huh. was a marvelous lecturer. He, uh -huh. could, he was what we used to call a three-board man. That is, in a 50-minute oh, yeah. uh -huh. period, he could cover three big blackboards. Uh -huh. with. And I remember on the first exam, I got 27%. It's an hour exam out of 100. And I was... I didn't know what to do, I thought. This is my first experience with real chemistry, but it was a course with 300 students in it, most of them pre-meds or wannabe pre-meds. Mm -hmm. So I went to talk to Professor Applequist, and he said, well, how are you approaching the course? And I said, well, I'm trying to understand. He said, wait a minute. You're not supposed to understand organic chemistry at this level. You're supposed to commit it to memory so you can use it. And I said, aha, to myself. I didn't say aha to him. I said, uh -huh. well, so I went back and started memorizing the thing, and on the next exam I got 99% <laughs> and ended up getting an A in the course. <laughs> so what's the moral of that story? The moral of, oh, well, <laughs> at an elementary level, don't try to dig too deeply. Is the, yeah. And uh, dig deeply later, and uh, I did, I was able find more understanding in the subsequent biochemistry courses that I mm -hmm. took, which were very, very good, mm -hmm. taught by very, very good young professors who later became members of the National Academy of Sciences. So were all of the classes you were taking in the chemistry department? Yes. Mm -hmm. Or the fluid mechanics one were in a, a program called Theoretical and Applied Mechanics. Mm -hmm. I didn't take any courses 
mm-hmm. civil engineering because that's where I was working. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a great it was a great intellectual uh-huh. success for me uh-huh. to start to I took several good biochemistry courses and uh, I also took an organic chemistry lab which was which was the scariest thing I ever had to do at that point in my life because you were let into the lab at one o'clock and the doors were closed and you had to be out by four o'clock twice a week and everybody was scampering to get the experiment done and they had to get it back into the drawer and close it. Uh, for a long time, I was scared to death because, you know, and they and you had to present your results. Did you get the yield you were supposed to? Was it, you know, did you get ninety nine percent or? But eventually, because that's what a lot of studying is is struggle. I struggled through and passed the course, both the lab and, and the lecture. In fact, I got it. I got A. I was so happy. <laughs> Sounds like you almost did an equivalent of an undergrad major in chemistry while think, you were teaching in civil engineering. I think that's in effect what I did, yeah. and it, it, sometimes it was very daunting because, uh-huh. like, physical chemistry was the most challenging for me. Uh, I took that probably in my third year at Illinois because remember you're taking just every semester you're taking a course, <laughs> uh, but you can't get very far very fast that way. But when I started physical chemistry. When I started physical chemistry, I could not understand a word of it over your head. I could not understand a word of it. It was, again, a big class with about 200 people in it, and a young, uh, very bright instructor. And so I went to see him. I said, I'm sorry, I'm having great difficulty in the course. He said, well, why? And I said, well, I don't understand, for example, what you're saying about wave mechanics or things like that. He said, well, just read the book. And I said to myself, I didn't say to him, I have been reading the book, goddammit. <laughs> so I dropped the course. I uh-huh. talked to a number of other students, and they said, well, he's not the... This man might not be the most lucid of lectures. I suggest somebody suggest I, you drop the course mm-hmm. and take it the following summer from a different instructor who was Kensel Van Holden. And this course met four times a week for the, for the summer. And he was light personified. I understood everything he said. And I did very well on the exams. And that allowed me then to take physical chemistry lab the following year and so forth. Yes, you're right. It, it was something like a very advanced undergraduate degree in chemistry, so that by the time I knew what I wanted to do, yeah. that is, doing research, I was more, I was ready to do it. I think I was ready to do it. That's very impressive. Okay, so now that you have at the equivalent of an undergraduate major in chemistry, then you decided you wanted to get serious. Well, so what happened? In the process, I had started to co-author papers with Richard Engelbrecht on the work that. I was doing chairing on phosphates, polyphosphates, and synthetic detergents in Illinois streams. And that eventually led to four publications. In that process, it occurred to me that I was not understanding things 
any deeper than phenomenologically. That is, I was t taking the courses in chemistry, but they weren't actually net integrated. Uh, so I started to think, what should I do? So at the, and at the same time, uh, Richard Engelbrecht became interested in iron in water supplies in Illinois. And, he and I, I have a question, though. Why did you like chemistry so much? Was it because you found the problems to be important yes, societally? That, uh, was it. it also because there was something inherent about the discipline, no, the way of thinking? It was because I made I made the, the, the judgment that it was going to be very important in the future, and it had not been recognized as such up to that point. And it was just my good fortune, in a way, that I recognized that and started to invest in it. Yeah. And Ra Rachel Carson hadn't written her book until 1962. That's what I was wondering. No, no, when so did that come out in the background of what you were doing? 1962. Uh -huh. by, by this time, uh, it was... But her focus, as you may remember, was pesticides and other synthetic organics that were inter interfering with ecological systems. Right. That was a very strong Silent message. Strength. Yeah, she mm -hmm. wasn't... Of course, there was an implication there uh, in her book that if it's bad for the ecosystem, it might very well be bad for humans, too. So it was an eye-opener, as you you probably have learned since. Uh, and uh, anyway, so it was my, my, my gut reaction, so to speak. This is going to be a big train. I want to be on it, <laughs> and and I want to be in. The, I want to be near the front. You know, that's part of the competitive thing that comes from sports. But I'm not really competitive in that sense. I was just very curious mm -hmm. about how things really worked. We published four papers. They were they were moderately successful. Uh, the last one was on the effect of these polyphosphates on water treatment. I helped design and uh, a master's, another master's degree student had built a mini water treatment plant in the large laboratory, which had coagulation basin, sedimentation basin, sand filter at the end. And we just ran experiments to find out what happened when the concentration of polyphosphates, which were in the streams, went up to higher levels. And it was striking, the polyphosphates were very, very interfering with the efficiency of the particle removal process that we were mimicking in this small laboratory, uh, small laboratory model. Well, it was about as long as this room, actually, so it wasn't that small. And we published a paper. I went back later and looked at how many times it was cited. It was cited 11 times. Now, I didn't even know about citations back then. Uh, one of the other papers that we published on the survey of the, of the sulfonates and the phosphates was actually cited, I think, 45 times. But I learned that 40 years later. I had no idea about that. Uh, anyway, I started to mention iron. And uh, it was a very interesting experience I had in that last year, start of the last year in Illinois. You may know the name Ralph Wolf. Uh, a brilliant microbiologist. Mm -hmm. And one day, Ralph Wolf and Richard Engelbrecht pulled up in front of uh, the laboratory and said, we're going on a field trip to look at filters in the state of Illinois. I remember Ralph Wolf, he was wearing a duck hunter's hat. And, you know, one of those... <laughs> and, and he was a very engaging man. Didn't, 
And so we went and we opened, we went to treatment plants and we had operators open up. These were pressure filters, so you could turn off the pressure, open them up, and you could see what was in the sand. And it was all sorts of iron oxides and possibly manganese oxides, but certainly iron oxides. Now, Ralph Wolf was one of the important people in understanding how bacteria oxidized iron to to make these iron deposits. That's the only time I ever met Ralph Wolf, but he had... This was clearly an important scientist, and, uh, and he was interested in the iron. So I thought... Not only am I becoming interested in chemistry, but it looks as though iron might be very interesting. And so I went over to the state water survey, which was just two blocks from the Illinois campus, and I asked to see Dr. Thurston Larson, who was the head of the water chemistry section of the survey. And I said, uh, I'm finding it difficult to learn anything in the literature about iron removal processes and iron in water. And he said something to the effect, well, that's not surprising, there isn't any. <laughs> but he didn't, I mean, he was he's a very dignified and uh-huh. semi-austere man, but very friendly. And so I told him, well, I'd like to know more about it. And then he very candidly and off the record said, and he wanted to be understood as off the record, I don't think you can learn any more about it here at the University of Illinois. And uh, I later found out he had, a, he had a rather negative opinion about the science qualifications of the people in the sanitary and civil engineering place. He didn't dwell on it. He said, if you want to understand iron, there's one person to study with. He said, is this fellow at Harvard, Werner Stumm. So I applied to Harvard and uh, was admitted. Gene and I had discussed this extensively. So what year was this? This was, well, I applied in the fall of, uh, I applied in the fall of 59 and I was admitted in the, sp- the spring of 60 and I entered Harvard in the fall of 1960. And Gene and I had discussed this quite a lot because she could tell the year after we were married that I wasn't entirely happy at the University of Illinois. And, of course, I started applying. Even then, without knowing what I was doing, I, was, I started applying to other sanitary engineering programs. So I applied to Berkeley, oh, really? Johns Hopkins, Harvard. Uh-huh. And I told her I was thinking of applying to this place, Caltech in Pasadena. She said, Pasadena? She said, no, you don't want to apply there. And I said, how come? She said, well, I taught in Long Beach in 1954-55, and on occasion I took the trolley. That's when they had trolleys up Pasadena. She said, it was the worst air I'd ever experienced in my life. We were right in the center of Smogsville right then at that time. So I never never applied to Caltech in 1957-58. I just dropped it off and applied to Harvard and eventually went to Harvard. So I, that was... And so what department was Werner Stumann? in? Uh, he was in... Uh, had a, they had an, a, an organization at Harvard very much like the one I came into when I later became a faculty member at Caltech. It was called the Division of Engineering and Applied Physics. 
and our program here we call the Division of Engineering and Applied Science. And so he was uh, uh, untenured, young assistant professor, had only come over from Switzerland in 1956, and this was the fall of, of 60. Uh, so he was, he was a professor of, his original title was professor of sanitary chemistry, which was what all the people who mm-hmm. were working were sanitary X, you know, sanitary engineering, sanitary chemistry. And I, I immediately recognized that this was a special individual. He was, first of all, larger than life, and learning how to speak English, but doing very well, and had written a couple of important papers already. And so it became clear that this is a man that I hoped I could work with. But he said early in my time there, he said, uh, but did you apply to him? No, he applied, you, you applied, applied to the program. To the department. Mm-hmm. And that's a little interesting side story. I applied to the Department of, of uh, Division of Engineering and Applied Physics, and within it, the water part of the program. And apparently, I learned later, they had a big fight about me on the admissions committee. And some people said, well, look, he's been at Manhattan College, he's been at Michigan, he's been at Illinois, now he wants to come to us. And, and Werner, of course, Werner didn't really know me at the time, but he said Gordon Fair, the Eminence Grease, the great man of that program at Harvard from the 30s all into the 60s, said, look at it this way, gentlemen. He's been to three other schools. If he doesn't work out here, we can blame it on any one of those three other schools. And that cinched it. <laughs> he convinced them there was no risk for them. <laughs> many, uh, I learned that many years later. Gordon Fair was one of my great supporters at Harvard mm-hmm. and was one of the great supporters when I was being considered as a faculty member at Caltech many years later. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Werner said, I'm not t- I can't take Ph.D. students because... I don't trust Harvard to grant me tenure because so many assistant professors at Harvard in those days, apparently, were not getting promoted to, to tenure. So I said, well, that's, I didn't, it wasn't a big deal for me, but he was the guy I wanted to work with. In March of that year, which would have been March 1961, he was granted tenure, associate professor with tenure, and he chose his own title. He chose water chemistry his title. Hmm. Associate Professor, Gordon McKay Professor of Water Chemistry, Harvard, Division of Engineering and Applied Physics. So at that point, I actively started working with him. That is, learning what he thought was important to learn, reading the literature and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so that was the coming, that was the coming to Harvard. There's an interesting side story of Werner Stumm and Larson having met before I had met either one of them. Uh, they were at a meeting, apparently, in 1957 or so, mm-hmm. and they didn't they didn't know one another. But Stumm knew who Larson was because he was already famous for his work on corrosion, mm-hmm. and Stumm was developing a reputation for being a very modern corrosion scientist through through water chemistry. So he entered, he, he he walked up to Larson afterwards and said. 
I admire your work very, very much. Uh, and uh, as the conversation went, Larson said, uh, "Yeah, and you know, there's a there's a there's a guy. I don't I forgot his name. It's a guy at Harvard who's really doing excellent work in in this area." He said. Uh, Maybe you know him. He said, I think his name is Stumm. And Werner said, I am Stumm. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship between those two men. <laughs> Illinois. Okay, so, so we're raising children and taking on a new student life. You had two children in Illinois, yeah. and then you moved to Harvard. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, so tell me what happened. You know, now that you're at Harvard and, and you're really deeply committed to studying your Ph.D. with Werner Stone. That's right. And I had to make a choice very early on uh, about what I would propose as uh, a major and what I would pr- propose as minor. And so I remember going over to a professor of oceanography because I thought, uh, ocean, I didn't know nothing about the oceans. So I thought, uh, maybe I could study oceanography. So I went Alan Robinson was his name, very bright, young British man. And I said, I'm interested in the possibility of a minor in oceanography. And he said, tell me about your mathematical background. And I told him, he said, you'll never make it. That is, you'll never make it studying with me or oceanography at Harvard because it's all mathematics. (laughs) And I said, thanks, that's good information. Good to know. (laughs) So I... I decided to look further, and I decided to take a minor in biological oceanography, which brought me into contact with Woods Hole, because uh, the the men at Woods Hole, who would be my faculty members, were both very, very eminent scientists, uh, Bostwick Ketchum and George Clark. And so I used to take courses. I used to take courses down, laboratory courses down at the hole, as they Mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. And so that... That was my minor, and my in the minor, you'll be very interested to know, I took a, bi- a microbiology course. Fantastic. A very good one with Kenneth Vivian Tiemann, who uh-huh. was the man from England who was very, he was his own eminence grease, and he, he was a very, very clear lecturer. And there was a laboratory as part of the course, and that was almost my downfall because I could not keep cultures from being contaminated. Ah, the old sterile technique got you. <laughs> yeah, it got me because <laughs> I, I probably didn't know what the hell I was doing most of the time. So it was a good course. I learned a lot of uh, microbiology, and in, especially biochemistry was his sub-theme within microbiology. Mm-hmm. So I got a good grade in the course, not an A, but, but this time I learned the meaning of Werner Stumm's uh, dictum, which he used to tell to another student, a good friend of mine, he said, Andre, there are A students and there are students who get A's. You're a student who likes to get A's. Concentrate on being an A student. Oh, nice. That's great. <laughs> Andre really had trouble. He had never had anything less than an A in his entire uh-huh. career before that. Uh-huh. Yale and Caltech, he got a master's degree, and he went and studied law at Stanford. Mm. All A's. And Werner would essentially tell him, get over it. <laughs> now you want to learn something. <laughs> so that was fu- that was funny. Uh-huh. Uh, so let me see. I took 
that I told you what my minors were. My minor was, and I enjoyed it very much, the microbiology course and the biological oceanography course. Mm-hmm. And then I started... Uh, what was your thesis on? What was the... Well, I didn't have a... a well... You after, didn't have a single thesis? Not yet. Okay. I mean, uh, this is all during the first year that I'm making these sure, decisions. What sure. to have a minor in, that will determine what courses you'll take, so forth and so on. Okay. Uh, and in the summer after my first year, which was the summer of 1961, uh, Werner put me on a project. He said, I think we should study the chemistry of aluminum in water as it's used as a water treatment chemical. He said, I don't think anybody understands it. (laughs) Which was typical high ground for Werner. (laughs) And he was often right. (laughs) So I worked in the laboratory very, very hard that summer doing experiments. I really was doing real experiments for the first time in my life because in Illinois I'd been running a model water treatment plant but, and it was hard work but I was, I was really feeling you know, I'm getting somewhere and uh, at the end of August he says now you're going to present this work at the American Chemical Society meeting next month in Chicago and I said what? and he said yeah you can do it he didn't even go to the meeting I went to the meeting, and I was the first speaker on the first morning. Right. I was terrified. I mean, really, really. And I looked out. There was Larson sitting in the front row and uh-huh. so forth. Anyway, I gave the talk. It was called Chemical Aspects of Coagulation. And, uh, and Larson was sitting in the front row. And I later, that year, learned I received an award for the best first presentation at an, at an American Chemical Society <laughs> meeting. Anyway... We wrote the paper together the following fall, uh-huh. and we submitted it to the American Waterworks Journal, which was, in the early days, that's where I thought you published everything, the American Waterworks Journal. Uh, and so, and Werner was happy to have a good paper. That paper was eventually cited 250 times in, by people in the water business, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, my own view is that it had an enormous influence on changing the way people thought about the chemistry of water treatment. Did it change the practice? Yes, it did. Yeah, it did change the practice. So that was that was very satisfying. And so at the end, at the end of that uh, first summer, and just mm-hmm. after I came back from the American Chemical Society meeting, I remember sitting down with Werner. He said, "Now, what do you want to work on for your PhD?" I started. I started to say, well, I could... I started, but did not say I could work on aluminum, and then something caught me. And I thought, I'm not really that fond of working. I mean, this looked like a very, very complicated subject, and it's going to be filled with people now that now, now that we've exposed it and we'll publish a paper. I said, I think I'd like to work on manganese. Why? What was it about And that's manganese? what he said. He said, uh-huh. why manganese? And I said, uh, truthfully, I said, you and G. Fred Lee, who had been a postdoc with Werner in 1960, have done what I what looks to me like the definitive work on the rate of iron oxidation by oxygen in God's buffers. I didn't use the term because I didn't know it then, but bicarbonate-carbonate solutions. And I said, I'd like to do... You imagine how brash I was, I... I'd like to do for manganese what you and G. Fred Lee have done for iron. He said, done. That became my thesis topic. 
which was the chemistry of manganese 2 and manganese 4 oxidation states in water. And the rest, as they say, not exactly history, but it was a very pleasant ride, that is. I worked very intensely on that for the next two years because I knew I didn't have a lot of time. You know, I'd, I'd gotten my bachelor's degree in 1954. Here it was 1961. The clock was running. But he said, okay, I'm going to hire a research assistant for you. You tell her the experiments that you want her to make. You do the experiments that you want to make. We'll fast-track this. Oh, wow. Uh, he had a grant. Uh-huh. Got a grant from iron and mag. It was called iron chemistry, but he, mm-hmm. he moonlighted on it and put in the manganese, which was a very generous thing and a very, a very happy thing for me. Uh, so... I defended my. Uh, so did you? Did you meet your goal? Did you do for manganese in I those did. years what well, they had done I, for iron? Well, you have to be very careful about overstating. Uh, I I would say I got great pleasure. It was one of the great intellectual satisfactions of my life mm-hmm. to take a problem from a cold start and with very little being known about it and carry it through to a successful. I thought a successful outcome. So that in that in the following February, I had to take my qualifying examinations, uh, which is preparatory to being admitted to actually do PhD work. Of course, I was already doing my experiments, but there's a formality at most universities. You have to be blessed in order to. So I remember taking the exam in February 19, 1961. Yeah. Was it 61? No, 62. Uh, yeah, February 62. My lab mates had such a great concern for me and I've always appreciated this they said we're taking you out to see a hockey game tonight the day before the exam to keep your mind off your exam we went to the Harvard ice rink and saw Harvard play Boston University I think and I didn't think about the exam all night I didn't sleep very much but I didn't think about the exam Mm -hmm. and uh, I did very well the following morning. Uh, I had the I had the questions answered and the committee out of the room in one hour. So I was happy. And Verna was like he was like a proud father because oh. <laughs> I was his first PhD student. Oh really? Yeah. How how much older was he? Eight years older. I see. <laughs> very nice. It's interesting because later I had a, uh-huh. a very very successful alliance with a, a young student who was 12 years my junior, so mm-hmm. it's almost a decade generation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's when I was officially blessed to go ahead and, for the record, work toward my Ph.D., and I worked all through 62 and all through 63 up until August when Werner told me, I'm throwing you out of the laboratory because they said, I don't think you know when to stop making experiments. <laughs> he, was, he was right, you know, just, just one more just one more experiment, now I'm going to find out about this. And he's, so uh, I, I gave him a draft of my thesis, and in the meantime I'd already been offered and accepted a job at the University of Florida. The reason for the offer of Florida is very, very interesting. That paper that we published in 1962 on chemical aspects of coagulation in the Journal of the American Water went right to this guy's heart of science. He 
took it to be a kind of, uh, and it was never meant to be, took it to be a kind of negation of what he'd been doing on the chemistry of coagulation. Which, which guy? A.P. Black, professor okay. of chemistry, University of Florida, Gainesville, mm-hmm. Florida. So he asked the journal editor, because he was A.P. Black was a very, very important man in water chemistry and mm-hmm. water treatment, to publish simultaneously with our article his commentary. But then he hired you. And then, and then he put in the word that he wanted. He wanted Florida to hire me. Pretty good. And so, I spent when I went to Florida. I shared an office with the illustrious A.P. Black. Uh, we had a, he had a big office, and he gave me a desk, and he had a desk, and I started to co-supervise some of his Ph.D. students. Anyway, and that all and, came that from that paper. But that was before. That was before your manganese. No, I would finish my manganese work. I was now at Florida. Right, okay. But I thought, with the chronology, I thought he offered you this job prior to your getting your PhD. Oh, yes. But you didn't move down there until afterwards, so... Well, it's complicated. Okay. Uh, I gave a theorem to all of my Caltech PhD students, never leave Caltech until you've written and defended your thesis. That's because I violated that rule. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote a draft, as I told you, gave it to Werner, and... And September 1st, moved with the family to Gainesville, Florida, and was immediately absorbed in working there because they had hired me, you know, and they were paying me a salary. And, and I was, uh, so I was involved in helping AP Black teach a course. I was helping to advise two of his PhD students. And he wanted me to introduce his PhD students to this newer way of looking at chemical coagulation. And, of course, I couldn't resist. And so it got to be January, and I had not finished the thesis. I had not gone beyond the draft. Enter Jean. She said, I can see you're worried about this. I'm going to hire a typist. I'll find a typist. I'm going to hire her. And your job, she didn't say this. Jean never speaks this way. But you should give her manuscript. So we started that in January. And boy, what, and this was the thesis on manganese chemistry, manganese 2 and 4. And in April, I, f- I finished the draft. That is, the typist finished the draft. Mm-hmm. I mailed it to Werner, and he scheduled the exam in middle May. I went up and defended the thesis in middle May. And uh, was successful. Very good. And uh, we had a little party at Werner's house afterwards. And he said, now, I'd like to ask you to join me in writing a book on water chemistry. Of course, in my weakness, I thought, well, that's, that's far in the future. And that's, and that's how Stuman Morgan was born. That's right. At that, at that cocktail party after I defended the I thesis. see. Caught you in a moment of weakness. Well, <laughs> I mean, I was so happy. I was Absolutely. So, I was so happy. All right. It's May 19th, 2014, and now we're going to pick up where we left off with the move to Caltech. Okay. Right? Good. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> My move to Caltech took place in the fall of 1965. There were several people who encouraged the move. Very important was Professor Sheldon Friedlander of Caltech, who 
learned of my interest in particles when we were serving on a review committee together. And then, of course, Werner Stumm of Harvard and Gordon Fair of Harvard. Uh, <clears throat> I was made the offer in uh, February of 1965, <clears throat> and I moved in the summer of late, late summer fall of 1965. When I was when I came to Caltech, I was starting to get a clearer picture of what I wanted to do, so to speak, for the rest of my life. And they were particles that had been a very early experience with both at Illinois and at Harvard. Uh, species: What were the actual chemical forms of compounds, ions, and so forth of interest? Oxidations. I started out studying the oxidation of manganese for reasons I alluded to before. It was the subject of my PhD thesis. I continued that work at Florida, and I got deeper into particle research at Florida. So when I arrived at Caltech, I was starting to shape uh, an agenda. And the theme that I imagined, because I was coming to a very, very strong university with a number of strong disciplines, the theme that I imagined was a multidisciplinary one. That is, there would be a core of chemistry to the research I would encourage students to do, and there would be a core of particles, and I imagined but wasn't sure that those would overlap in my time. And what was the name of your department at the time? Environmental Health Engineering was the name of the department in 1965. In 1970, it was to change to Environmental Engineering Science with with an emphasis on the, the science underlying environmental engineering, and it embraced air uh, and water and had some subdisciplines like radi- uh, radioactivity and so forth. Uh, the reason for changing the department name was to attract students who might not want to be working in environmental health, but they could certainly come. And many of Sheldon Friedlander's students at Caltech worked on health-related subjects, especially the lung. Uh, so, and the other thing it was teaching and research students. That that I I imagined that this would be a, that Caltech would be a, a very good place to to attract strong students and to give them guidance about what they might study. But my idea was always to have students choose what they wanted to study. And my my question, usually to a prospective student right in the early days, was, what do you think you'd love to do? And I pretty much stayed with that question over the years. Well, when I arrived at Caltech, I had a couple of, I had a, a student who was, so to speak, left over because his professor had left, and that was Jerry Schwartz, and I helped him defend his thesis, and I assured him that the biologist on the committee was right in saying that the thesis did not un- reveal an understanding of what biological adaptation was. I convinced Jerry that he had to find out. He revised the thesis, and it was very... That biologist was Henry Borsuk, a very great biologist uh, of the time, 30s, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s. 
I brought uh, a Caltech. I brought Frank Berkner with me as a postdoc. <clears throat> I had co-advised his thesis at Florida. He worked on particles, and we did a very, I thought, pioneering study on the kinetics of particles becoming larger in the presence of polymers in solution. That was the new technology that was coming on board. How do you use long-chain molecules in order to encourage, so to speak, the uh, coming together of particles, which in an engineering sense would then make it easier for them to remove through sedimentation and filtration. And that, Frank Berkner spent 66, 67 with me. And the following year, uh, Jingling Chen, who I had also co-advised at uh, Florida, also joined me as a postdoc. He worked on manganese, and uh, but this was interesting because at this time uh, I was fo I was starting to think of manganese both under the rubric of particles and also under the rubric of how fast does it how fast does it uh, how fast can it be oxidized? So I was. I was returning to an early theme from my work at uh, Harvard. In 1966, after I was at Caltech a year, I was persuaded to become the editor of Environmental Science and Technology, ESMT, and that was a post that I held for eight years. I may have alluded earlier that to the idea that I thought I was too young to, to do it, but... I did it anyway. And uh, so those years were kind of challenging because I had to establish the criteria for acceptance of papers in the ESMT. Made some friends, made many critics, <laughs> because I was the one who said yes or no. Anyway, that was a parallel stream. I spent about maybe 20, 25% of my time overseeing the publication of research papers at ES&T. What was your idea for the journal? What did you think was its mission? I, well, I wrote a very, uh, what I thought was a very, very fine editorial, <laughs> which came out in the first issue in January 1967. What I argued was that successful solutions to environmental problems came from fundamental research, and as uh, my colleague Friedlander was fond of saying, environmental policy should come from the laboratory door. And that was the theme. I didn't quote Sheldon, but that was the theme. And for that, uh, I had to hit the ground running and be sure that that was clear and also that those were the papers that I would favor in acceptance. Uh, I didn't limit it to any part of science. I made it clear that chemistry, physics, Biology, uh, technology were all candidates for publication in the journal, and I think we succeeded over eight years in making in making that stick. What I remember most about the early days of the journal is that I was the only editor. There was no associate editor, and there was a managing editor in water in uh, Washington. By the time we reached the present time. Environmental Science and Technology has an editor and eight associate editors, and the number of publications uh, each issue each year are off scale. I would say. I mean, they're just—it's it, been a great success. 
thanks to my successor and then his successor and now the president. So it's evolved, and I think well. Now, I told you that uh, I said that I had a theme and I was trying to implement it. And one of the themes was speciation. And I, in, in, in the person of a postdoc, Dr. Halka Balinski from uh, Yugoslavia, uh, we had a series of experiments which combined the two themes. How fast can manganese be oxidized? This is a laboratory study. And what are the species in the solution that either encourage or discourage the oxidation? Uh, now, I have to confess that to this day, I am still working on the final publication from that the data. I think it was more difficult than I realized. That is, to, to bring kinetics, speciation, under the same roof, and to have a successful paper. So I'm still working on it, uh, and uh, I think probably by this time next year, we'll be able to submit it, uh, maybe to environmental science and technology, but I, have a, I also have a warm spot in my heart for Geochemica Cosmochemica Octa, where a number of our, my students have published. So that gets me to 1967 and a very important event in my young scientific life, the French Connection. It was uh, a day before classes started in 1967. Uh, a student walked into my office and introduced himself as Francois Morel from France and said he wanted to take my course in water chemistry. I spent about half an hour trying to persuade him that that would be the wrong course for him to take uh, because I knew he was going to be a, a research student in properties of blood and the, uh, the particle properties of blood and the fluid mechanics of blood and so forth. So I said, there's a course you should take, uh, taught by Professor Norman Davidson. It's uh, biophysics of macromolecules. I thought, well, I've convinced this young man who I had just met. And the next morning at 8 o'clock where I taught my class, when I taught my class, sitting there in the front row was Francois Morel. He said, you're stuck with me. That course isn't being offered this year. <laughs> and that shows the importance of chance, I think, in, uh, in making progress in certain, in certain areas. He, he was a very bright student, very bright, very questioning. And about a month into the term, quarter, we have the quarter system, he said, uh, and we had become very comfortable friends with one another by that time, he said, uh, have you ever heard of the computer, Jim? Uh, I said, I've heard of it, but I don't know how to use it. And I've had a few attempts to persuade people to do chemical calculations, but they said, they say, oh, it's trivial, or they'd say, oh, it's much too complicated. <laughs> Francois said, I think, I think we can do it. And so we set out there to work what I call moonlighting. We would come, come to my house, or we'd meet at the Athenaeum bar in those days, and we'd start to sketch it out. Uh, and out of that collaboration over the next two years, while Francois was finishing his... Uh, 
PhD research on, in the biophysics of uh, blood and the, the movement of potassium through the red, cell, red blood cell membrane and so forth. We got, a, we got the first version of a program which we humorously called Reticule for R-E-D, for redox and EQL for equilibrium, to hint that it was, it was a very broad-ranging program. And uh, in 1970, Werner Stumm, who had heard about this young man, uh, he was still at Harvard, invited him to come to Harvard and compare his computer program, Reticule, uh, with a program developed at the RAND Corporation in Santa Monica, which was being touted by a postdoc there in environmental sciences at Harvard. So Francois went, and they had what I think back now is a shootout, and they both ran the most complete calculation available at that time for seawater, one with the RAND program, which was called Scientist, and one with Ridicule. And impressively for Werner, they got identical results. And, but he found Francois's program much more, much more understandable because it used the coin of, of chemistry, equilibrium constants, essentially, whereas the, uh, the RAND program used, used the same data in a way but cast it in a language of free energies and so forth. So that was the beginning of, of Reticule. We published uh, a report we quote-unquote sold the program to EPA, desperately needed to know how to calculate speciation, and they funded uh, additional research, which allowed Francois to stay with me for another two years before he accepted a faculty position at MIT. And those were two years as a postdoc two, at this two, point? Two he years graduated? as a postdoc. He, got a, he defended his degree in 1971, and mm -hmm. so he stayed for two more years. And uh, was a very key member of my laboratory as it was growing at the time, because he was so quick and intelligent to spot things that that other people might take advantage of. So he was he was a very valuable resource to everybody around him. Uh, so we published a key paper in 1972 called "A Numerical Method for Aqueous Equilibrium." And we published an applications paper in 1973 with the undergraduate research student, Russ, Russ McDuff, uh, who subsequently went to Scripps to work on uh, ocean geochemistry. And so that was what I call the French Connection. It was very, very fruitful. A number of highly cited papers, but especially influential papers that had other people getting the program for free. <laughs> Francois said, let's give it away, because if we sell it, we'll, be, we'll have too many responsibilities. <laughs> well, it turned out that giving it away didn't solve that problem. If you gave it away, people still wanted to know how to use it. And so, But it was fruitful. And, and didn't it get renamed to Minicule? Yes, the, the, uh, a capsule of that is that when Francois went to MIT, uh, he started to show the program to some of the students there. And one of the bright students, one of the brightest students was John Westall. And John Westall took a look at it and he said, I don't think it's the most optimal matrix, that is the, the numerical methods matrix. Well, we had chosen to have uh, metals and ligands combining to form complexes uh, with the metals in one place in the matrix and so forth. That's a, a numerical detail. But John said, we should do the matrix differently, and that led to the program 
minicule in 19... 1975 that I think that happened. So uh, that was the program. The Minicule version was the one that became the template for so many other programs, that, including commercial version. So that was very, very uh, important. And just just so everybody appreciates where that led to, uh, the names of the programs that we use today for geochemical modeling are they all descendants essentially? No, they're par- the they're cousins. There, okay. there are. Uh, it, it is the one that most people with an environmental or biological bent. It is the one that most researchers today still use. Some version, some derivative of uh, minicule, and later it's uh, small relatives, microcule, and so forth. Uh, but there was a parallel development going on in earth sciences at about the same time, which we were unaware of, and they were probably unaware of what we were doing. And so there's an interesting family tree which has been sketched out that shows the parallel and overlapping development. The, uh, the program, the program uh, in geology had a different name. And so there's been some merging uh, of, the, of the strengths. We were not at all knowledgeable about geochemistry. In fact... I told Francois, he, Francois said, tell me what chemistry is like so that I can model it. I said, chemistry is acids plus bases giving complexes. That's all you need to know. And the complex can be an aqueous species, it can be a solid, it can be a gas, but it's acid. All metal ions are acids. It's bases. All ligands are bases. Acids and bases give complexes. And that's what we'll model. And so he just took, took to it like a fish to water. And he bought the whole thing. <laughs> but then Westall said, there's a better way to do it. And he was absolutely right. In 1969, I became a, a full professor at Caltech. And uh, I'd literally been unaware that I was moving toward that direction. The day that I, le- that I learned, I was coming out of the Athens. I was going into the Athenaeum for uh, a five o'clock uh, beer with with Francois and one of the trustees somehow he knew me uh, or had he said oh you're the man that's going to save Caltech of course they had just voted on my tenure <laughs> I don't think he knew anything more about me than that <laughs> anyway that 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 was four years after I came to Caltech then I started to have research students after uh, I'd had a few I inherited one, as I told you. I had some early students. And the theme of it, uh, in an outline that I showed you, uh, and which you certainly can have or already have, I tended to, to, to describe my students and postdocs as either blue or red. Nothing to do with Republicans and Democrats. The blue students, so to speak, were working on particles and polymers and the transport of particles through water and so forth. Mm-hmm. And the red students were working on manganese chemistry. Alka Belitsky there, she was a postdoc, Michael Keswick there. And so over the over the, the history, if you look at my my summary, it's a mixture of blue and red. And uh, that turned out to be sufficient to have, I thought, a very dynamic research program and gave students who expressed an interest in working with me some room mm-hmm. sometimes to combine the two mm-hmm. a number of students did combine the two particles and they're the purple and oxi- ones 
Uh, <laughs> no, the, pur <laughs> the purple ones are the French. <laughs> the, uh, all the other ones are red or are red or blue. I see. I, I see a few green appearing later. Well, that's biology. Okay. Uh, from time to time, uh, a student would say, uh, I wonder if you could help me figure out the chemistry of what I'm studying, usually with Wheeler North, who was a marine uh, ecologist. And so one of those collaborations was with George Jackson, uh, who studied trace metals and phytoplankton in seawater and also kelp. Uh, but with this paper that I cite here, it was, what are the essential nutrients, what is the, the essential critical nutrients for growing algae, in sea, for algae growth in seawater? Mm -hmm. And we wrote a paper, which was published in 1977, which the editor of Linology and Oceanography, which was where we published it, uh, Yvette Edmondson said, is one of the longest shaggy, doors, shaggy dog stories I've ever read. <laughs> but she's, she published it. <laughs> it was a long paper, I think. <laughs> and the shaggy dog story, I think, meant only at the end will we find the answer. <laughs> they go on for a very long time, these authors. Yeah, so your, your, your perceptive, it was read blue, and occasional green. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for example, later on in, 19, in the 1980s, uh, one of my students, Lisa Anderson, studied uh, iron reduction nutrients in kelp for the, for the very embryonic stages of the kelp plant and so forth. Now, here's... Uh, as students came in, in the 70s especially, some brought their own problems. Uh, Fernando Sedeña Cepeda from Mexico uh, brought a problem. That's my phone. Brought a problem which had to do with the effect of temperature on the activity of bicarbonate ion in waters and soils, which is one of the most important ions. And I said, "Sure, you can you can work with me." And uh, turns out he was a very independent worker and had a nice thesis, and uh, ended up showing how temperature influenced by carbonate ion activity in, in aqueous systems. Wrote a program for it and so forth. And then went back to Mexico, where he became a professor. And then came back to the States and became a professor at New Mexico State. So there are, there are occasional students here who don't fit any predetermined pattern of mine because they said, this is what I want to work on. And I said, fine. Same thing was with uh, acid rain. Uh, I was asked to visit Cornell in 1975 and advise Gene Likens, a very uh, well-known and brilliant ecologist, about how to measure the acidity of rain because he had come under some criticism. And I spent three days there, uh, watched their methods, looked at their data and said, you're doing it absolutely correctly. Uh, and, and he said, good. Now, how about... Have you, how about the possibility of doing the same thing in California because it hasn't been studied in California? So I presented a couple of topics to uh, a new student, Howard Liljestrand, and he said, I think I'd like to do acid rain. And he did wonderful work on acid rain, both in Pasadena and over the Los Angeles basin. And uh, a number of very successful papers were, uh, were the result. Uh, from time to time, then, I would find uh, the opportunity to do work on something that was a contemporary problem 
that didn't necessarily have a long-term agenda following it. Uh, manganese, of course, was always something that had a long-term agenda following it, and coagulation of particles, and think that was all. But then occasionally other problems would be, would be the, ch the student's choice. Uh, so you see, if you look at the if you look at my chart, you'll see blue and red, and then you'll see re lots of red, and then you'll see lots of blue. Uh, what I'll just mention a few a few uh, highlights that I thought were successful bringing together of these particle and oxidation themes. One was coagulation of iron oxide particles, hematite, pure hematite. Stoneman and, uh, and, and I independently over the years since our, my doctoral work had come to the conclusion that the chemistry of the surface, not the, chem the chemistry of the surface, which in turn depended on the chemistry of the water, was consequential for how fast particles could aggregate and get together. And that was the subject thesis of uh, subject thesis of Lian Liang, a lady from uh, Beijing. She studied the coagulation chemistry of hematite, and uh, it was a very successful paper. Uh, so I was very happy with that. I gave her that as a suggestion, and she, and she grabbed it and ran with it. Uh, but it's, I don't put it under red because it's iron, <laughs> and it's not about oxidation. It's about particle coagulation and transport. Another uh, fruitful combination of the manganese theme with, uh, with uh, particle theme was the work of Michael Scott on the oxidation of arsenite by manganese dioxide, the particular manganese dioxide, burnicide. Uh, he studied the, the pH and solution chemistry dependent rate of conversion of arsenite to arsenate, a more potentially toxic form to a, a less, and you'll be aware of, of that from your own experience. In 1985, a student came to me from industry. Uh, he had been a consulting engineer and he had, a, he had a master's degree from Berkeley, and he said, I think you should be working on asbestos, which then was a very potentially important problem because the waters of Northern California, <coughs> in the Sacramento River and the, and, the, and the Bay Delta area, are in geochemical areas that are abundant in arsenic, uh, excuse me, in um, asbestos and a particular form of asbestos. student was Roger Bales, and he said, I think I can get the money to do the research from the state of California. So that was a very, he was one of my most, uh, I'll say, entrepreneurial students. He raised the money mm -hmm. <laughs> and did some very elegant experiments. Uh, and was his work was consequential for how asbestos could be removed from water in Southern California if it if it developed that it was a very important practical problem. One of my uh, geochemical students was Egal Errol, uh, now a professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who came to Caltech 
he told me, with two people in mind. He wanted to work with Claire Patterson, a great geochemist, and he wanted to work with Jim Morgan, whom he'd never met. I said, you're welcome, come. <laughs> and so his, his thesis was a, a very, very uh, elegant combination of field work and laboratory work and speciation modeling and so forth. The mission we published with Patterson, uh, I think about five very consequential papers, and that was all in the geochemical literature. Mm-hmm. And so it's all... Blue. How much how much interaction over the years did you have with your colleagues in GPS? Quite a lot, uh, but most with Patterson. Mm-hmm. Patterson, as, as I'm, I think you know, was uh, eminent for his work on lead, both in the dating the history of the Earth and also lead in contemporary in the contemporary world. And he also studied lead in uh, ancient societies, Roman societies, uh, South American societies, Native American societies. He was a very, a very uh, perceptive man, and he was very open to collaboration, as long as, <laughs> as he told me, as long as the collaborator isn't an engineer. <laughs> I said, "That's a bit of a problem, Pat, because I am an engineer." He said, "No, no, you're." You're more than, you're, he said, you're more than an engineer. I think you're a scientist. That's been the history of my life, though. I'm, my, I'm an engineer. I'm a scientist. I'm an applied scientist. I tend to choose the problems that are amenable to the skills that my students and I have. And so, yeah, Patterson, well, he, was, uh, he was very enthusiastic about one of my students, whom I haven't mentioned yet. Uh, I did some field work, although it, it wasn't the major theme. Tom Holm who's now head of the chemistry, aquatic chemistry section of the Illinois Water Survey, uh, studied, decided he wanted to study trace metals in lakes and reservoirs in the state of California. And before he undertook that, uh, Patterson invited him to be a member of a, a round-robin study to uh, measure very low levels of lead in seawater. And so Tom agreed. And he ran the analysis in our laboratory using his methods, which was an electrochemical method. And uh, Pat and his students used mass spectrometry. And Patterson said to me, Holmes is a very good student. He got the same answer that I did. <laughs> well, that was Holmes was fastidious and very, very, very... I wouldn't say perfectionistic. He just wanted to get things very carefully done and right. And that's been the mark of his of his career since. One of the most uh, fruitful interactions uh, of all of my students, well, two of them. One was with Alan Stone, uh, now a professor of environmental chemistry at Johns Hopkins. Alan said, how about studying organics and manganese? Well, his memory of it is different. He said, you suggested it to me, but I remember that, I su- that he suggested it. <laughs> anyway, he studied the oxidation of uh, organic compounds like hydroquidones and then a whole suite of different organic compounds, found out their reactivity scales, that is, those which reacted fast, because the products of the oxidation would not be the original compound. And he published uh, two beautiful papers uh, on that in... Uh, in the mid-80s, and then went to Johns Hopkins. The other uh, 
very uh, fruitful collaboration with a student was Mark Schlautmann. Mark Schlautmann was aware that there was a growing interest in uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbons, which were uh, toxic in many ways, and he thought, how are they transported? How do they get through water? And he had a hypothesis, which was that they were transported by attaching themselves to humic acids. Uh, and he, he developed a, a very nice fluorescence technique, and he studied the binding of the polyaromatic hydrocarbon compound. He studied a couple, but one particularly. And then he had took the next step. Now that I have, if I have polyaromatic hydrocarbon connected to humic acids, do the humic acids absorb to oxides in water? And he chose aluminum oxide. And indeed, he had a very, very elegant result which showed the pH dependence and the, the water chemistry. His thesis, his thesis really was, does the water chemistry matter for organic pollutants like polyaromatic hydrocarbons? And does the water chemistry matter for their ability to attach to oxides, which would end up in the sediment? So that was a, that was a very satisfying piece of work. Toward uh, the, the 90s, I started to know uh, Ken Nielsen, uh, who I think was at maybe Southern University of Southern California. He had been a number of places, but that's where I think I... And he started to ask me questions about manganese 3 because he said, in your thesis, the title of the thesis is manganese 2 and manganese 4, but what about manganese 3? I said, well, if you read the thesis carefully, <laughs> ever, the, ever the pedant, I said, you'll find that I speculate about the possibility of manganese 3 but have no other than laboratory evidence for its existence. And I did in the thesis. I made different complexes of manganese 3, EDTA pyrophosphate. And so I asked the student, Ken Klawicki, to take a close look at manganese 3 species in water and their complexes with uh, EDTA, pyrophosphate, citrate, uh, and a few other organic ligands. And that led to a very a very, very interesting set of results which had uh, quite an influence on Alan Stone and his students at Johns Hopkins because they saw the potential and they also saw the limitations of our experimental techniques. Uh, Alan had a more powerful suite of uh, chromatographic techniques for, for studying it. And so that was the work of Ken Klawicki, uh, who is now an engineer in, in, the, in the Washington area. Uh, and my last student, continue that theme, was Tom Lloyd. And he published his thesis in 1998. And it was getting close to biology. It was iron oxide, manganese oxide, and desferioxamine, the, the, the bacterial exudate. It was a very elegant thesis. It still is. It's been cited by many people. But Tom did not have the time in his life to write up the results. He had to get on with uh, supporting a family and 
going into the world of business. And so he is a, he's a guru of advising a large financial company on environmental opportunities. And that's so he was a wonderful student because he he was interested in everything. If you're interested in everything, like I remember this guy, Jim Morgan, when he was at Manhattan College, it can be a disadvantage because at some point either somebody will tell you or you'll decide yourself that you can or cannot take the next step, which is the hard work of producing a paper. Yeah. And Tom just couldn't bring himself to devote all that time to it. And I certainly didn't want to write up the elegant work that a student had done just on my own. And I was, I was one year for retire- from retirement at that point. Uh, the other thing I, uh, I mentioned, I haven't mentioned, except very briefly, was the book, Aquatic Chemistry. Mm. It was published in uh, 1970. In uh, 1981 as a second and unfortunately larger edition and was published in 1996 as a still larger edition. Uh, and that was four years after Werner Sturm had retired at uh, ETH Zurich and four years before I retired. Uh, it was a very, very often cited book. The three editions together, according to one of my sources, cited 18,000 times. But Werner, uh, Francois had a very simple explanation for that. He said, everybody cites aquatic chemistry because they know whatever they're interested in is in there someplace. <laughs> so when he and uh, Janet Herring wrote their book on aquatic chemistry in 1993, uh, they made quite a point of saying what page in aquatic chemistry by Stumann Morgan was actually being referenced. And that was a discipline, and that I, I admire that. But uh, we never cited ourselves, but other people would just cite Stumann Morgan. <laughs> and it's in there someplace. Right. I know it is. Sometimes it really wasn't in there. So. <laughs> oh, I hope that's helpful. That's, that's fantastic. Do you think there will ever be a fourth edition? Uh, I was asked to put out a fourth edition in uh, 2006, which was about 10 years after the third edition. By that time, I'd been retired six years. I found that I had no appetite for uh, a fourth edition. I could not imagine it could be less lengthy than the previous edition. And I advised the publisher. I don't think the time is now appropriate for a book that attempted to cover so much aquatic material as our book did, uh, I think it's time for books on inorganic environmental or inorganic aquatic chemistry, organic aquatic chemistry. Well, they didn't agree with that, and the reason, of course, is that they have a vested interest in the brand. Mm -hmm. And so they have persuaded one of my former undergraduate students who incidentally was a surf fellow at uh, Caltech in 1980, to undertake a book with the title Fourth Edition of Stillman Morgan Aquatic Chemistry by, and then his name. But that was eight years ago. So I don't know if that book will be coming out. And of course there have been other books. I've mentioned Francois Morel's two books, one with Janet Herring, 
my student James Pankow uh, wrote his book called Concepts of Aquatic Chemistry. Uh, so I'm not so sure there's a need for that the need for that book that existed at the time. I think there was a, there was a clear need to bring together the threats of chemistry of natural waters uh, into one place and call. I remember Sheldon Friedlander said, though, Jim, that aquatic chemistry, that sounds a little fishy. <laughs> and I said, I mean, I was so opportun- I was so optimistic. I said, just wait and see, Sheldon. <laughs> so, yeah, that, it was a very successful book, and I'm very pleased when, with it. When did you get that Stockholm Water Prize? 1999. I shared it with Werner Sturm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, sadly... Three, four weeks after we both learned on a joint telephone call, uh-huh. Zurich and California and Stockholm, he passed away oh. at the age of uh, 75. So he empowered me to go to Stockholm, mm-hmm. speak for both of us, and uh, I'm sorry, he knew that he was in, in ill health, and he said, I just can't do it. So Gene and I went to Stockholm, collected the prize, brought one statue home for uh, Werner mm-hmm. and, his, and his wife, and, uh, and and the check. It was a hundred and fifty thousand dollar prize. So not bad. Not bad. For, and, and what? Not and bad what, for thirty years' work. What was what was that in recognition of? How did they describe uh, it? It was in recognition of uh, research contributions to aquatic chemistry especially uh, the part that they thought was important was the, uh, the science of, uh, of, uh, of pollution by algal nutrients because that was one of uh, mm. Werner's strong theme and I had written a couple of papers with it and it was certainly preeminent. It, it occupied a prominent place in our book. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I spoke, I, I, I addressed that and I also addressed some of the things that were more important to me in the Stockholm Laureate Lecture. What were the things that you valued more? Well, I want I wanted to talk about uh, acid rain. By the way, when I, this is probably not apropos of anything, but when I first started to work on acid rain, Werner Stone said, there's no such thing as acid rain, Jim. He said, lakes, uh, he was focusing on lakes. He said, lakes become acidic because of their own biochemical processes. I said, I don't think so. There's abundant evidence in New Hampshire and other New England states and in Sweden and Norway that the rain titrates the lake. Ah, he said, oh. so three years later, he invited me to join him in a paper on the chemistry of acid rain <laughs> together with Jerry Schnur, who a uh, professor from Iowa, mm-hmm. who uh, I think... Werner uh, believed, in a sense, more than he, than he did me, but eventually he believed both of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, acid rain is an is a important phenomenon in certain states in the United States. Uh, we found out that it, the level of acidification was not high enough to be a danger in most parts of California, except for a few Sierra lakes up in the Sierras. Mm-hmm. So that was... a. Uh, Wernerstum and I often had disagreements, which I'm happy to report were successfully resolved, or we agreed to disagree. He never believed that manganese could be oxidized 
by in an abiotic process, which might be interesting to you as a biologist. Uh, he said uh, his experience with one of his students was that if you set manganese from lake water in a bottle on a shelf, after two or three years, nothing had happened to the to the manganese. It didn't become oxidized. And that was in direct contradiction to my own thesis work for <laughs> 25 years. And I took a close look at the data that he was alluding to and decided the experimental protocol was... It, it couldn't be justified. You had to have more regulation than that. So in the end, we just agreed to disagree because he passed away before I published, <clears throat> as Janet liked to joke, the definitive paper on manganese by Jim Morgan. <laughs> Still another? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But where did it stand with the thesis? Did he not agree with the thesis he turned in? His student... Well, it was all a small part of the, it was a small part of the thesis. Uh, I made uh, I have a chapter. Maybe he just didn't notice that. Oh no, he noticed it. I mean, but it was his student Dieter Diem, Diem uh-huh. who said it's possible that when Morgan did those experiments for a short period of time, the pH became elevated before the solution was perfectly mixed, and that's a that's a very reasonable uh-huh. alternate hypothesis. So I went back and did some experiments in my own lab with some of my my students where we kept the pH low and didn't adjust it by adding acid in, and we think we controlled it. Uh, I think there's no question, but in the long run, that is 200 days, manganese left in a solution at a a pH of about 8.5 or 9. Mm-hmm. will become oxidized. Oh, the definitive work on that, I think, was actually done uh, by uh, by von Langen at uh, Monterey Bay Research Institute and uh, Cal State Hayward, who who measured in seawater at pHs, to pH, pH of seawater, as you know, is about 8. And so he did experiments where he collected the seawater and adjusted it up to like 8.2, 8.3, 8.4, and so forth. And then with a method specific for manganese 2, which I didn't, I had to filter samples in order to get the manganese 2. Solids were collected on the, on the, on the membrane filter. But Langan clearly showed that there was, a, there was oxidation and it, it rate, its rate increased as you increased the pH, but never got to the pH of any of my experiments. So mm-hmm. I was... That made me more confident than anything else that Dieter Diem's hypothesis was appealing but not completely defensible. But I have no doubt that biology is the most important mechanism for converting manganese 2 to higher oxidation states in natural waters. And that's clearly shown by many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my paper in, 19, in 2005, I compare as best I can the three characteristic timescales of a biological process, of a surface-catalyzed process, and of an aqueous process. For And uh, I use the pHs of the experiments made by the biologists or made by the surface chemists. And I think it's probably the, in, in about a half a page it's the most concise rendering I could give ten years ago 
about that. I've never been, I've never been a critic of biology, although Vernon was. I mean, funny how it starts out. He was very critical of Henry Ehrlich. You know who Henry Ehrlich is, one of the great microbiologists of manganese in water. Uh, he was very critical of Henry Ehrlich's work because he said, how do I know that Henry Ehrlich controlled the pH? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's no question that Henry Ehrlich knew how to control the pH. And mm-hmm. I met him uh, in, ni- in the 19, late 1960s, early 70s at a meeting. And we had a very nice chat. Uh, he was a very soft-spoken, quiet man. And I've read his uh, memoir in... Uh, the reviews series, and it comes comes through. This is this is the real Henry Ehrlich, <laughs> very self-effacing, very modest. Yeah, yeah. He's a he's a really lovely guy. So, have we covered the main hits you wanted? To yes. Talk about all right. So uh, then, uh, I have I have a few other questions. Good. So, um, So at this point, if you were to give advice to a young scientist um, in the field of environmental science, what what advice would you give them about choice of topic, about ways to conduct well, their research, any anything you think is important? Well, what, after I'd been a professor for a while at Caltech, both serving on thesis defense committees as a faculty member and advising my own students. It seems trivial now, but uh, at the time it seemed very important to me. Make sure you have chosen a clear question. And my joke was, if you don't have a good question, how will you know you have a good answer? But I was serious about that, and I I very often found students were in the habit of the time, would say, I looked at, or we're looking at. Now, I don't, it's, I don't criticize it. It's, it's, a, it's a casual language. Mm-hmm. What it means is we're investigating, I mm-hmm. think. We're going into. We're, mm-hmm. uh, the main difference that, of the advice I would want to give now that I probably was unable to give 30 years ago is be sure you know the best available experimental protocols and methods to answer. Once you chose a question, be sure that you have found the tools that will help you answer the question. Uh, you know, I used to kid my students. I said, well, in the early days, in the 60s, I'm a, I'm a sulfuric acid and rubber hose man. <laughs> that is to say, my techniques, what I have available and what I can offer to you are pretty... Uh-huh. Simple. I had good. I had good particle counting uh, equipment, which actually was my dowry at Caltech. They bought me a culture counter. That was my startup. My fifteen thousand dollars to oh, buy wow. a culture counter in nineteen sixty-five. But it was very valuable, and uh-huh. it continued to be used by students in my lab and other people's lab right through nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. So, uh, be sure that you understand. Environmental science today is spectroscopic as well as analytical uh, you can't you can't answer some questions without the very very best and most sensitive method if I were doing my work now I would want to study manganese uh, or any element like manganese 
at levels of nanomolar to uh, micromolar. Mm-hmm. At the time that I was working as, as a student in Shum's lab, we had no method that was better than 10 micromolar. And so that leads to uncertainty about the generality of the results. I don't think you can extend the results to seawater if you've studied it at 10 micromolar and you know that manganese in seawater is one micro, one nanomolar or, or less. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and also, uh, so a good question. Exploration of all the uh, all the techniques that are valuable, and that will almost always mean now interlaboratory work. That is collaboration among scientists from dis- often from different disciplines. Yeah, I knew coming to Caltech that it was a multidisciplinary opportunity because I knew something about the people before I came. I knew the work of Norman Davidson in chemistry. I knew a little bit about the work of, of Sheldon Friedlander in particle science. Uh, so I imagined that the work would be multidisciplinary. I never could be clear about whether I meant multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary. Uh, in in the case of Patterson and, and my lab, it was certainly interdisciplinary. In the case of multidisciplinary, one student can learn how to command several disciplines, mm-hmm. uh, as your student has, mm-hmm. your, your recent student, Sebastian Kopf. Kopf. Uh, I think the most important thing is the question, and 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 hand in hand with that, is there a technique that will actually answer the question? Right. So that's good advice. Good advice. Now, I know from my own personal relationship with you what a fantastically supportive teacher you are. Um, And I don't even know if you yourself are aware of all the ways in which you've supported people through very casual, supportive remarks. Um, But it's something you mean God's buffer. No, I mean. No, John wrote to me and said, "I'll never forget." After I told him that you had visited, he said. I'll just never forget that. It's the most important advice I received. Because <laughs> uh, it's easily over. No, I I always wanted to be a teacher. When I was young, I just didn't know what I could teach. When I went to Manhattan College and experienced the teaching of Donald O'Connor, I said, that's something I can do. That's not that I can do, but that's something I really want to do. And I even said in a, in a note that I wrote, three-page three note about a year ago, I could make a living doing that. It was always a fear of, a, of an Irish immigrant kid, is could you make a living doing... You know, that's why the insurance companies appeal to me. Uh, I always wanted to be a teacher. And when I found Don O'Connor and water, I started to see an opening. And the opening needed to be filled, though, by strengthening my uh, my armamentarium. That's where chemistry had to be studied very, very seriously. So that when I uh, oh, I, I told you I, I, the funny story about teaching. Uh, I didn't teaching fellow without stipend. In my first year at Harvard, I became ill in the first semester, and so missed about a third of the term. But I, I recovered in the second ter- second semester. I was, Vernishtum said, I would like you to be the teaching assistant in my water chemistry laboratory. Unfortunately, we have no funds. 
So I want you to be teaching fellow without stipend. <laughs> I thought, what the hell? I was supported by a fellowship for that first year anyway, so uh, I said, okay. And the first lab, he said, here's a bucket, and here's a broomstick. You'll probably need that to pry off the lid on the sewer out in front of the lab, which was Oxford Street. Uh, he said, I want you to bring in a bucket of sewage because the sewage flows right down one of the main sewers right there, and the students will need it to set up their biological oxidation experiments. And I thought, boy, this must be the real world of Harvard. I, <laughs> it's not what I expected, but it seemed very, very real. <laughs> so I stopped the traffic. I used the broomstick to pry up the lid of the sewer. I lowered the bucket down on a rope and brought up a good bucket of sewage and carried it into the laboratory. That must have been quite an impression. I, well, <laughs> see, that's something I actually knew how to do. And uh -huh. I, I, when I went to Harvard, I didn't think I'd, I'd never need the things that I'd grown able to do, like sampling rivers and right. collecting bottles of water and so mm -hmm. forth. But here I was, a step up, I was collecting a bucket of sewage. That was, <laughs> anyway. Uh, I've always thought teaching was important, and I've always thought that supporting the community you're in is important. And that's, people say, why did you do that? Some people, you know, friendly. And I jokingly say, but not entirely joking, I said, because I was, I was raised a Catholic with a social conscience. And so that, in the background, without wearing it on my sleeve mm -hmm. or anything, mm -hmm. that's always been a part of my, uh, my approach to the world. So if I had, if I had a more single-minded approach, what was it? Werner Sturm said, told somebody else. Werner was always telling other people things that he thought about me, <laughs> and he told somebody else. Jim could have been very productive if he'd worked harder. <laughs> That's the same thing Don O'Connor told me when, uh, why he didn't recommend me to Harvard in the first place. But I had to choose my own form of working harder. I couldn't follow somebody else's script. Now, Werner was an obsessive worker. I think he worked 16 hours a day. And because he loved finding out things in chemistry. I love finding out things, but I also like... Uh, was, it was very important for me to work with others in finding out the things. That's why the students were so important. I couldn't have worked in a pure research institution. Uh, I just wouldn't found. I, I don't think I would have found it satisfying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So thank you for reminding me that I've done some good turns. I sure have. <laughs> um. Paper said, "You know what? You know what the difficulty is for you." He said. He he meant to be ironic. You care so much, <laughs> and he said it in the context of standing up to give a lecture and wanting to get it right but being scared out of my mind that I gave a lecture before the chemistry department in 1969 about metals in the environment and ocean pollution. It was the thing I knew at the time. And sitting right down in the front row is Max Delbrook, a famously critical person. And uh, I get about three sentences into talking about the ocean and the trace metals in the ocean. He said, what is this upwelling of which you speak? And I described it. You know, ocean water being moved up 
and then carrying nutrients and metals from below into the surface waters in interaction with the currents. And he said, good, I think I understand. And he never asked another question in, in the lecture. And he, and he remained through the duration of the seminar? Yeah, he well, remained throughout the... That's a the, big compliment. He came, he, he, uh, he did, and it was in, George was at that lecture. Mm-hmm. And he saw, he said, you know, there wasn't a dry spot on your entire shirt. And he said, that's because, that's, that's because you care so much. <laughs> well, I did, but I was terrified. I mean, this was one of the most distinguished audiences at that, that I addressed at that time in my life. And, or chemists, essentially, and graduate students in chemistry. Where, where was this again? It was in one of the two lecture halls. At Caltech. Yeah. Okay. One of the two lecture hall lectures in noise. I'm sure that yeah. Jonas has lectured there a number uh-huh. of times. So, so how do you think being at Caltech shaped your, the arc of your career? What were the most important aspects about being here that influenced the trajectory it took? Oh, the best students. Yeah. The best students I could imagine that consistently, year after year after year, mm-hmm. students who wanted to learn and students who were willing to take suggestions uh, and to choose. If you know, if it became clear that I was not going to be the right advisor, mm-hmm. then we had abundant possibilities for mm-hmm. faculty. And, mm-hmm. and we never said, you have to have an advisor in the Division of Engineering and mm-hmm. Applied Science. Some of our students were advised by Patterson. Some were advised by Sam Epstein. Did you know Sam Epstein? I sure did. Yeah. One of the dearest men I ever met. And he was very kind to me. And uh, he, uh, Sam Epstein treated everybody he met as an equal, I thought. That was one of his... You know, he would just talk to you like another guy he knows. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of our students worked with Sam Epstein. Uh, I don't think we ever had a collaboration with biology, though. Did you, did you seek out these collaborations yourself, or did they just arise naturally through your students? I or think, a little bit of both? I think they arise, arose naturally through my students taking a course somewhere else. Because mm-hmm. I always, going back to my story about Francois, I always wanted to encourage the student to, to get a course that would be the right course for himself or herself. Mm-hmm. And uh, Francois did take the course the following year, so <laughs> he took my advice the following year. He just couldn't take it that year. No, I think it was because the students taking courses learned about the possibilities of uh, uh-huh. of other professors, right. and I think that's how it worked out. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, so what are what are the things that you feel most proud of about all these accomplishments and um, both the scientific and then the more personal level with the people that you've mentored. Are, are there any things that really stand oh, out in yes. your mind as what no, you're well, very I'm, proud of? I'm, I'm, I don't like to go, I, I, I don't feel comfortable just going through and naming, yeah. naming students, but some, some of the students, I'm so happy that their career worked out the way it did, and I feel that in part it's Part of what they learned from me about uh, how to be, uh, well, how to be an advisor, how to be a teacher, and so forth. Uh, and it's, I think it's it's usually the students who were the most independent in spirit, but who were also very glad to have my advice. It's a, it's a funny thing. Uh, I have one. I have a. I had a student named James Hunt uh, who wanted to study. 
uh, coagulation of particles uh, at a deeper level than uh, to apply it to seawater. And I just I helped him design the experiments, and I supported the construction. There was a, a pair of cylinders, one rotating around the other, creating in the annular space between the cylinders a well-defined fluid mechanical environment, which was shear, not not uh, laminar shear, not turbulence. So it was a well-defined. That goes back to my roots at the University of Illinois when I studied. Uh, I had a second minor in fluid mechanics. I always wanted to not be intimidated by the physics that, and so Jim, Jim did that thesis and uh, did it in my laboratory, defended it very successfully, and then said, "Now uh, I'd like to publish a paper with you." And I said, uh, "No, I think you should publish this paper on your own." because it is your work and the most original work that I've been associated with in advising a student. And he said, really? I said, absolutely true. And so he did. He became a professor at Berkeley, and he retired last year with uh, heartfelt expressions of appreciation. So I wanted him to run as fast as he could run and do it the way that he had to do it and give and I I, I, I I sort of ironically, you know, I, as I grow older, I'm finally shaking the last vestiges of irony, because irony was a very important part of my my growing up in Ireland and then in New York as a street kid. I said, Jim, all I did was help you to avoid making mistakes in chemistry, <laughs> which was partly true, but I think he felt that I supported him. Very, very strongly. Yeah. Oh, I'm very, I'm very pleased the way things worked out for some students. And I, now that I think of it, it's absolutely true. The more independent they were, the more they could benefit from my advice, because they could decide to accept it or or argue with me and so forth. A student who never asked a question of me and just sort of uh, routinely went ahead and did the experiments I suggested probably did not get as much out of my advising as uh, another kind of student who said, I know what I want to do, now help me. <laughs> I remember uh, Windsor Sung, who was an undergraduate at MIT, uh, came to Caltech in 1976. And he was, he's from Hong Kong, and very aristocratic, as you might guess from the name Windsor Sung, uh, British colony, very fundamental education. And during the first year, he never even wanted to talk to me. He showed his independence. And I suggested something he might work on. Yeah, I'll think about that, he said. <laughs> At the end of the year, he came to me and he said, Jim, I need advice. <laughs> I said, when you're ready for advice, I'll be ready to give you advice. And so uh, we outlined a, a thesis uh, which led to two very, very outstanding publications. One on the speciation of, speciation of water affecting iron oxidation mm -hmm. and the product of that iron oxidation. And then a second paper in which he took the product of the iron oxidation and put it in a suspension and see if, to see if it would catalyze the oxidation of manganese too. And voila, it did. Mm -hmm. And that was an eye-opener because I don't think anybody had 
seen that before, that iron oxide formed by oxidation of iron could in turn be a catalyst for the oxidation of manganese. It was a, just a, 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 a nice link between two different metal cycles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That gave me great satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Getting through to him that he needed my advice, but letting, letting him go until he needed it. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what do you think your successful students, as they've gone on um, to lead labs of their own, have taken from you in terms of the style of which they uh, advise? I think that uh, I think Alan Stone has probably followed my not my style, but followed my uh, my advising him and made it a part of the way he he's a very very devoted counselor of students and postdocs. That is, he stays very, very close to where they are and have they, if they're having trouble and uh, helping direct them to the right techniques and so forth. Uh, so he is probably the student of all my students, along with Mark Schlautman, who's a professor at Clemson, who, uh, who I would say look a little bit like me, uh, with, with much many, many more skills and uh, especially computing skills, things of like that. I, without Francois, I never would have broken through. And that was a breakthrough, because and nobody else had done it at that point. In, who who thought of himself as a water chemist or an aquatic chemist? We had only invented the, tam- the, the term aquatic chemist the year before. Werner Sturm. Now, how did you come to invent that word? Werner invented it, uh-huh. but uh, he put it in a in a preface to a symposium book, American Chemical Society, 1966 symposium. And the book was published in 1967. And we had talked a lot about this. We had talked about two themes in, in, in Europe, it was called hydrochemistry. In the United States, there was a water chemistry tradition which was focused on operating treatment plants and using chemistry to improve the operation of a treatment plant. And then in the geological survey, there was sort of aquatic, aquatic, but not aquatic, they never called it, I mean aquatic, the reason Sheldon Friedlander made the joke he did, he's never heard the term used before, he thought it was biological. And we talked about it and decided, no, there's an aquatic environment in which chemistry and physics and biology and ecology all come into play. And so that's why the word aquatic, so that's what I said, that was the baptism of, of aquatic chemistry. But I, will, I, I had started to see it as bringing these themes together and not leaving them separate. Right. You know, not, mm-hmm. That's chemistry for geochemists. This is chemistry for oceanography. This is chemistry for water treatment. We tried as much as we can, undergird with the principles of acid-based chemistry, redox chemistry, Precipitation dissolution chemistry, those are the first four or five chapters. And then after that, go into what we thought were useful applications. I was thinking of something else. I think the student who probably, uh, uh, actually Francois, as you know, was never really my student. He was my colleague right from the get-go and a postdoc with me. I think he was the least susceptible to being influenced by uh, a style because right from the beginning, I think Francois was such a strong personality that he, he had his own style. But uh, 
He was, I mean, he, he, he was always very cordial to me, and we spent many, many hours, days, weeks together afterwards over the years talking about his science and my science and so forth. Uh, he was, I think he became the most independent throughout his career, and in fact changing his discipline entirely, I would say. But the reason he was able to, I think, is that at MIT he started to exploit solution chemistry in support of the students and postdocs he was advising at MIT. You know, how to design how to design an experiment that has clear chemistry in it and then you can study the phytoplankton, you know, and, and you'll know what you've got. Uh, and then that led over what, twenty twenty two years to he was ready to take the deeper deeper move into genetics and, and then that blossomed at, at Princeton. I think you once told me, "Don't think about micro, don't think about uh, molecular biology. Think about genetics." That was a very helpful suggestion, because I was getting sort of overcome by the language of molecular biology. You know, all these different names for things, and and of course, I was I was across the lab, I was across the hall from J.D. Watson's lab as a graduate student at Harvard when I took Kenneth Tiemann's biology course. So I was that close. This was 1960. I was, uh, and he, two years later, Watson received the Nobel Prize with Crick. I was that close. Uh, at the University of Illinois, where I studied biochemistry, they would they would talk about DNA and what the structure is, and we just learned it five years ago. You know that <laughs> that sort of stuff. But Francois, the most, I think, clearly the most independent, and probably the. The par excellence, I mean, member of the National Academy of Sciences, distinguished Caltech alumnus, two, two books, countless students and postdocs, you know, mm-hmm. dynamo. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have guessed it the first day, but I was pretty close to guessing it the first year. <laughs> I mean, he was, though there are people who are ambitious, uh, and you sort of sense it about them. Francois was ambitious internally. One of his favorite expressions is, I will not wear my heart on my sleeve, Jim. I'd never heard the expression before. That is, I will not show my emotions. And he stuck to that pretty well. Only in basketball did he get angry. (laughs) You know, I taught him how to play basketball. That was the funniest thing. He said, what are your sports, old man? He started to refer to me as old man. And I said, uh, tennis and basketball. So we went out to the where the swimming pool is now. There used to be an asphalt court with basketball hoops hoops on it. We went out and played. And God, he was like a bull in a china shop. I mean, he thought, he didn't see any reason why he just couldn't run you down if you were in his way and so forth. But we had a lot of fun, and gradually the group grew. Gordon Trewick, another one of my students later, was walking by one day and saw this basketball game going on, and he asked if he could play and so forth and so on. By the time Francois left in 1973, we would have 15 people out for basketball. Uh, you know, five, five, and five, and waiting. Uh, and he got to be a pretty good basketball player. The only problem was he thought he was Wilf Chamberlain. <laughs> and, and Wilf Chamberlain was seven foot tall. <laughs> I used to tell him that. I said, come on, you're not Wilf Chamberlain. <laughs> we used to have these inordinate arguments with George Jackson uh, who was part of that group and uh, Francois about who charged and who blocked you know the 
the basketball call that's most disp disputed? Did you run into somebody, or did he step in front of you? Oh, we would. Time out. We have to. <laughs> George Jackson started bringing a rule book to the bar at the Athenaeum afterwards to, <laughs> to correct me. <laughs> that's great. Actually, there's one thing I never, I haven't mentioned uh, because it's a parallel track in my life. It's vice president for student affairs, dean of students. I was vice president for nine years. I was dean of students in the 70s for, for three years. Is even a while I was filling in as dean of graduate studies. I found a lot of satisfaction in that because you actually put yourself in a place to support student welfare. Uh, and uh, I think I did that. That is the new gymnasium and the new swimming pool and the new weight training room stem from a talk I gave to the trustees in my first three months on the job as vice president. And I said, what students need. And somebody came up and we never heard about students. Nobody ever talks about students. And I said, well, that's why I said it. <laughs> and so John Braun stepped forward and gave the money in succession, the pool, the weight training, and, and the gymnasium. And, you know, I learned something very important. You can't expect credit for something. You just do it. Because when the, the building was dedicated, the gymnasium was dedicated in uh, the year after I, I stepped aside as vice president, my name was never mentioned. I was in the audience. There was a new vice president for student affairs. There was a new president. <laughs> just, I just never mentioned it. I said, that's the way it has to be. You know, you do it. You do it because it seems to me it needs to be done. It's the same thing with graduate student housing. I, when I was acting dean for a couple of years, I, I had a meeting with some graduate students who said, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's almost impossible for a graduate student to live in Pasadena because of the prices on rentals. I said, well, tell me the numbers. And they told me the numbers. And so I had a meeting with the vice president for finance, who was then David Marshall, before your time, I think. And he liked the idea. He said, I think we can get the money for that. We can issue bonds and we can get the money. And all those houses on Catalina stem from that meeting with graduate students. And I would happen to be in the position where I could at least try to do something. And I found a response of other person in the administration. And we did it. That is, he did it. I didn't do it. No. Mm -hmm. I just carried the ball so far. That's why uh, you ask what is most satisfying. My teaching and, and guiding research, absolutely the most satisfying. But helping the community as, a, as an administrator, you know, faculty members generally like to express their distrust of administrators. They even say things like, I see you've gone over to the other side. Mm -hmm. And then I would say things like, but I'll be back. Because <laughs> I never left teaching. I always, uh, they were all so-called half-time positions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know how half-time positions can be. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. That was very satisfying to me. Mm -hmm. And when I uh, stepped down in 1989, I felt I'd, I'd done uh, as much as I could, and I wanted to get back to full-time teaching and research. And indeed, in those last several years, I had some very good students. Mm -hmm. Hey, as we say in New York, hey! <laughs> <laughs> Well, you right, probably got... We hey, wrap it. Put it in the can. That's what they say in movies, I think. You've been listening to Annual Review's audio 
for over 80 years. Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquet Paz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>